Good morning. Welcome to Hope Church. My name's Ross. Thanks for joining us online. And of course, here in the room with me, uh, we get to continue our series through the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And I'm so excited for this chunk of scripture we get to walk through together. We are going to do it at a pace of um, brisk walk, not to sprint and see where the Lord leads us. But I'm, I'm entrusting, I, I trust him so deeply that his Holy Spirit's already moving within your life as you've been processing and today we get to be met with many specifics about what the righteous way of living uh, and the law of Christ would look like and how he contrasts those with what was to come before. We're beginning to understand this difference, though, that Jesus is looking to uh, capture our heart. He is concerned with the position of our heart, which leads to the actions in which we step in in our day to day. And so the heart is what he's after. And if I could hope that you learn something today, it would be something like this. Then the way in which we live for Christ as followers of him uh, would be a reflection of our surrender to him from the genuineness of our hearts and our actions would flow out of that. And that our hearts surrender to him, our actions would flow. And today we get to look at a lot of different actions in which the Pharisees and religious leaders took part in, but their heart was in the wrong place. So we're going to read the passages as we go along together this morning. I'm going to open in prayer and then we'll begin. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much. Father, thank you for being so present with us in our time of opening your word and seeking after you. God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us hear from you. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hands to take action. Uh, and God, at a calling command from you to live obediently in our everyday Father, we love you and are so grateful to have this opportunity to be together with you. So God, would you uh, deeply encourage us, convict us, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Originated around the 13th century, and is anyone alive around then? No, okay. Um, a tile game, which had a line down the middle. So you think of this little tile, had a line down the mi middle, had two numerical values on each side. A tile game kind of came to be. In the 13th century, of course, it expanded to what we know today as the game of dominoes. And if you're like me, I've never played a game of dominoes in my life. Um, it is a game that a few probably take part in uh, in the way that it was meant to be played and, and how it's played today. But if you're also like me, you have played with dominoes before, if you know what I'm saying, right? You take those little tile pieces, turn them on their side, and make beautiful, beautiful outlandish illustrations with them. Uh, and as you do that, you would set them up in a way that they fall over and show a beautiful display of what you've created to be. Now, if you look on the internet, YouTube, somewhere like that, you'll see really quickly that people do this almost to a profession. Like they, they make these really intricate, uh, specific, beautiful uh, things with dominoes to where they set them on their sides. They turn in these masterpieces in their rooms. They spread across to other rooms and some of them to like other houses. It's crazy. So you can look that up later. But all in all, I played with dominoes in that way. So I only know that context in the way of dominoes. But as, as I was reading about it, it seemed really intriguing. So hopefully you get it. And students in the room, this isn't the pizza joint. It is a game that you play. Maybe your parents can show you some other time. It's not the Domino's pizza, all right? So it's not the game where you eat as many pieces of pizza as you can. It's a different game with tiles. You'll get it later. So students, just ask your parents at home. But either way, you set these tiles up side by side and they create this masterpiece you want to create. It's kind of satisfying, mesmerizing to watch, if I do say so myself, I guess. And I think that what's interesting about it is you get to create something on your own. But if I were to begin to think about it, 
there's something really important about the way in which you play with dominoes like this. And that is the first piece. The first domino that you set up needs to be at a place that is very important, specific, because if that falls in your process of setting up, all else would fail and your, and your satisfying event would be quickly over. You probably didn't actually complete what you were trying to do. So the first domino is severely important. What that first domino does is it sets up a starting point to then you creating what does the rest to be. And then at some point when you're finished, you get to knock it over and it begins what's called the domino effect. You're welcome. Yep. I came up with that on my own. But anyways, the domino effect where you see all these dominoes going around in a special way and it looks awesome to you. Okay. So in this idea, I was thinking of what Jesus is after. And if you think of it like that with me, he's after the domino of our heart. And that is first and foremost, what is then to begin an effect to come throughout our life. See, in Jesus' pointed words, he's specifically after our heart in such a way that by us surrendering our heart to him and loyalty to him, by us seeking him in fullness of heart, it would then transform the actions to follow, create this domino effect in which we'd be changed forever, not only for today and tomorrow, but eternity to be, but yet also not only for eternity to be, but for today and tomorrow. That this change that would set off like a domino effect would actually affect those around us in relationship, friendship, marriages, uh, distant relatives, uh, the people you meet in, your, in the mall, in the store, wherever you go. That this domino effect, by the way, in which you entrust God with your heart and surrender fully to him, things might change from there. We begin to see a continuum of these contrasts to what Jesus would say is this old Torah law, which is still fulfilled and rightly just, but yet they were practicing it without the sincerity of heart. They were only doing by action for action's sake, yet their heart was not in the right place. And today we get to see furthermore of that. And so we'll continue through Matthew 5, um, 27 through like 48, but we're going to start specifically in a passage today that'll really help framework and frame out what we're going to understand from each of the sections we walk through together this morning, and hopefully would help you remember the actions in which you could take, take heart literally, and, and spiritually, the actions in which you can take to take steps with Jesus. But I would hope that you can grow in understanding as followers, the way in which we live must begin with the way in which we entrust, surrender our heart to Christ, and our actions may follow. The reflection of our heart surrendered to him. So let's go ahead and start in Matthew 5, 27. If you have your Bible with you, you can grab it under your seat, on your phone, whichever. I don't mind how you read it. I'm going to read it aloud, though, so you can follow along with me. We're in Matthew 5, starting in 27, Jesus says this, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so beginning very quickly, Jesus recognizes this Old Testament Torah command, which is right and just and true, you shall not commit adultery. But at the time, the Pharisees and religious leaders were allowing anything up to that point of physical adultering in the context of action to be okay. And yet Jesus is saying, no, the action of your heart is deeper than that. It's not only the act of adultery physically, but also a root of adultery in your heart, which comes by the way of lusting towards another. You should not lust to begin with, with your heart, because it leads to the full fulfillment of this adultery physically. And what is adultery? If we can quickly just reference that, it's this voluntary sex between a married person and not their spouse. And lust in this context is a sexual lust and which personally, uh, selfishly gratify, gratifies one. 
And so this lust of the heart, this sexual lust of another, is what Jesus is pointing to in our life. And not just the act in which, yeah, you did a good job of not doing that, but your heart's in the wrong place. Not even the way in which you look should be in a lustful manner. For the, for the setting of your heart is important to me, Jesus, and what he's saying here. Whoever looks, and so we're seeing this key of look and see. And then Jesus steps in to what I like to call a head snapper. A head snapper is something very simply like if I were to tell you after last week of saying I don't run, and I just said, hey, I run, I've ran like three marathons. You'd be like, what? That's a head snapper. First of all, it's false. So I'm sorry, I'm not going to lie to you like that. But you'd be like, well, that is so, what are you saying here? And Jesus, in a way of a head snapper, begins to say this. And it can snap our heads, but really, uh, there's deep truth to be understood in what he says next. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And thankfully, Jesus here enters into what's called a figure of speech. He, he begins to portray the deep uh, uh, separation that must be needed in order for you to flee the gates of hell and live in a righteous manner. Thankfully, it's this figure of speech. Otherwise, we probably won't have hands or eyes or we wouldn't by this point. He's explaining that it is better for you to lose an eye or a hand than to enter hell to begin with, to be condemned for your sin and what your hand or your eye would cause you to. And I think in our cultural context today, and the, the severity of where we live in this social media age, this is ever so true to where we presently sit. That the sin and lustful desire of our eye and our hand rests with a phone, rests in our computer, rests in media that is quick to find us, that notifications are quick to tell us and direct us, that it then captures the, and actually uniquely taps after the intent of our heart and desire for it. I, I feel like just an encouragement to you is that maybe some of you need to begin to cut off the social media avenues in which you find lust by your eyes or even your hands, in which you let yourself go that far. But I'm not uh, committing adultery against my wife, but yet Jesus is stating by the intent of your heart you are. You're stuck in your lustful passion in a way. So maybe there needs to be, like in John 15, referencing some pruning in your life of cutting off those things in which you feel so bound to. Let's be real. You, if you find yourself in those positions, you truly feel bound. You truly feel that no one would understand or where could I really go? And Jesus welcomes you to go to him. And in this reality of pruning and cutting things off, it's this abandonment of things that would lead us astray to yet correct the heart and where it's at, take step in trusting Jesus, surrendering to him everything and cutting off what would not measure up. And Jesus continues by way, in light of adultery, speaking on divorce, he says in Matthew 5, 31, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of a, a divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. Anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus, by stepping into this specific context of divorce, is not beginning to uh, teach it in its fullness. And we won't have time to explicitly do that today. But if you think of the heart in which adultery exists, in, in the sense of uh, being with someone who is not your spouse, 
let's be honest, divorce breaks the Lord's heart. It is not what he intended between man and woman to be under unity for eternity to then find divorce. It certainly breaks his heart. But yet, should that say that someone who has found themselves in divorce, maybe a family member, a friend, or yourself, is far and alienated from God? By no means. He offers grace and mercy for you today and in your relationship for tomorrow. But yet, in this context, Jesus is, is really severely allowing us to see this picture of where your heart would exist if by any means you take on divorce. And that's where the Pharisees would allow by stating certificate of divorce. Because you see in this context, the Pharisees and religious leaders, what they would do is say, you know what? It says, you know, this in the law. So like, we'll let like anything about up to this point slide and it'll be okay. As long as you get a certificate, like the law says. It'll be all right. So that means if you wake up in the morning and you had that bad argument and you're angry, yeah, you can get a divorce. It's no big deal. It's bad. Uh, if that cooking wasn't so good, him or her burnt something, divorce. It's all good. As long as you get that certificate. They were missing the heart and understanding the unity and beauty and design in which the Lord had brought together divorce or divorced marriage between one man, one woman, and himself. They were, they were missing the heart and intention of it all and just writing it up to a certificate to be, which actually then in this process was found to abuse women in the context. That men would get a divorce for any means and whatever necessary, as long as certificate was valid, I'm good. Which is by no means the heart of marriage that God had and intended. So Jesus in this way shows us that there's an intentionality between our heart and then our actions and what we see and do with our hands. And this will kind of help framework the next few passages we'll sit in together and specifically this morning that I want you to walk away with. And so here in Matthew 27, 32, we see this framework and you'll see it on the screen. It's in your notes. I'll just admit to you openly that over the last few days I've been praying and I often pray, Lord, show me what you see. Give me the words um, that you want me to say, that you want me to, to share. And one of them slightly shifted. So on your notes, you're going to see a different word for uh, your heart here. And so it's on the screen. You can just nudge it out and right above it. But number one, point number one, if you're taking notes for us with us this morning is this position my heart. Number two is turn my eyes. And number three is direct my hands. And we see in this context when he addresses adultery, but also in the way of marriage, we see that the, the adultery starts in the heart and then affects your eyes. And then you must direct your hands or in other words, affects your hands. By the cutting, gouging out of the eye, cutting off of the hand, but internally it's a heart position you need to change. And so in this context, us as people, followers of Jesus, as disciples of him, we must take position of the heart and seek after purity first and foremost from within. We must also take position of our eyes and turn them from lustful desires or passions and turn them to Christ away from them. And then we must direct our hands and by any means necessary, Right? Take them away from sinful lust that we find ourselves in with our hands that can look like a phone or other actions to be. We must direct our hands in seeking of purity in our everyday. May they submit to the Lord in fullness. Jesus continues in Matthew 5, 33. He says this, Again, you have heard that it is said to the people not long ago, or people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, 
or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. When thinking on oaths, I quickly just go to the point that I am so intrigued by lawyers, okay? The, the people who uh, claim a profession of being a lawyer, I'm just so intrigued by what they do every day. Maybe it's just me, but just the reality that they go and, and defend those who partner with them or however that word is, sorry lawyers, they go and represent, they go and uphold the law to the best of their abilities to, to what the law portrays, what it says. When I thought about oaths, I thought of them. I have a few dear friends who are lawyers and I get a little glimpse of their day to day. And I thought of them because when they take on this profession of being a lawyer, they take on this oath that before man and God that they would be honest and truthful, that they would um, do the best they can to uphold the law and all of that. And, and sorry, any lawyers in the room, if I diminish that oath, I'm not trying to. This is how I understand, just quickly understand it and want to explain it. So the Old Testament law, specifically in this way of oaths, do not break your oath, but fulfill the vows you have made, was right and true. Jesus is then pointing us to the hard issue that could be of honesty um, and, and the truthfulness we need to display in our everyday. Yet in this time, the Pharisees and religious leaders, they had created such a complex uh, view of the oaths you could take that it skewed the heart's intent in order to take them. So for example, they would uphold any oath that was made under God, and that would be upheld to the letter of the law or convicted to such. But yet they also made these loopholes that someone could take an oath to uh, under the earth or under Jerusalem or under um, the heavens. And these oaths, what they would say, are not as punishable. That if you take an oath in that way, you could get out of it and it would be okay. You could uh, steer clear and that would be your loophole to get out of it. And so an alarming, alarming thing to you would be if someone came to you and said, I promise under the heavens that I will do this. And they'd be like, you're probably lying, right? Your heart's in the wrong place. You're taking an oath that you're finding a loophole not to proceed with. And that's the heart position Jesus is getting after. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either under heaven or all of these things. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make it another hair white or black. All you need to say is a simple yes and no. All you need to be characterized by as a follower of me is someone who is honest and truthful in all their every day in every way. A simple yes or no. Because all the oaths you make in unity and direction with God are under him. You're representing him just as much as you. And you need to take a yes or no, as simply put, no, no need for these fancy oaths or these loopholes in which your heart is, is, is taking advantage of. Your heart needs to be reset, repositioned. And again, we see this position of heart that we must set honesty and truthfulness to be at our core. We see the turning of our eyes. In which ways can I look to my relationships and conversations and display honesty and truthfulness and actually follow through? and the direction of our hands and obediently following through to the things we say we would, or even withdrawing from those we say we wouldn't, that we would be obedient in those ways. The truth of the heart, the, the position of it is what Jesus is after. Matthew 5, 38 continues, you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, 
hand over your coat as well. If any forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give the one, give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And here Jesus addresses retribution and revenge. And that opening statement is so appealing to us. An eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, right? So quickly do we want to get to a position of giving and directing the same pain and hurt which has been directed to us towards the person who has done it. Man, they should deserve the same as me. Jesus begins in this upside-down kingdom shifting and showing us the position in which our heart must be. That not an eye for an eye, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If they slap you, turn your right cheek and offer the next. Now in this context, uh, not necessarily Jesus is encouraging violence on you. Let me tell you that. But yet this figure of speech could be in the way of insults or direct negativity towards you, persecution with you between one and another. And so in Jesus saying, if someone slaps you, turn the other cheek, it's in the context of that, that insult, that, that someone coming after you, slapping you in the metaphorical way in the face. And in that context, turning the other cheek means not firing back and giving an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. We live in a culture now, if you, if you fall or just walk into any sort of argument, the momentum builds quickly. That the insults start, and maybe a generally, oh, that was a rough, to a momentous, like, uh, you know, exclamating, um, explicit, and all of these things mounting for more and more and more until there must be a peacemaker to step in. And the beauty about us surrendering to Christ is we are those peacemakers in which he calls to step in. We are those peacemakers which he calls to step in in our everyday. That as those throw insults, we get to show a different way of love and peace by turning the cheek, but also and by no means Jesus is throwing out the, the system of justice in which we live. He's not throwing out that, that we should just be trampled over, yet dealing and addressing it with it in a peaceful way. And I was so proud of our church not too long ago. We held a peacemaker training uh, for any who would like to attend, and it really helped direct and guide our hearts toward this position of peace in times of conflict when insults are thrown our way, or when, when persecution is thrown our way, and allowing us to turn the other cheek, yet so lovingly and kindly, and yet directing it correctly and looking for a way to be a peacemaker. If we continue... We see this idea of if you're sued, take off your shirt. They take your shirt and give your coat. And giving up your coat would be so countercultural this time because in this context, specifically, the coat would be this like possession that, that is uniquely to, to everyone. To, to give your coat would be like giving away a large piece of you. And Jesus not only doubles down on this idea of a way to show and express love by if you're sued, give up your shirt, which first really quick, I... And really obvious, maybe not so much in this time, but to us, we most likely wouldn't sue specifically for the shirt off your back. Like I've never seen those scenes on YouTube or anything where it's like a judge is made and then like there's people in the corner saying, well, you own my shirt now, you know, and they like take off their button up shirt. And they're like, here you go, you know. So, so in this context, we're seeing a little bit, bit of a different view than maybe what we experience. But that so relates with the coat and in and, and this specific and Jesus is even pointing to that which you think you have a right to own. May you step in with relational reconciliation at mind to peace. 
And I think of it very quickly of my house. We, we bought a house here in Dubuque when we moved here. And of course you pay for that through loans and stuff like that. We did through that. And then you, a lawyer's involved in that, which our first house, I didn't know, really know that process. And then you recognize you pay for it. You have these property lines you need to take care of, right? Um, but specifically in our neighborhood, we have an awesome neighbors, neighbors in the back of the yard that we love. And our property line's not so specific. It's just like a few uh, internet posts that kind of like you look with your eyes at my line. I don't know. And so we're like, okay, so one day our neighbors in the backyard, you know, they lay out a slip and slide. And I could quickly go back there and be like, you're kind of on my yard. What should we do here? But I love my neighbors. I genuinely do. And we know them. We, we share life with them really well. And so in this context, this is a light example, but I could do that, right? I rightfully own that land and I pay for it forever. And that's hard to like admit, but like with taxes and stuff, you just like pay for it forever kind of. And it's kind of, you know, but do what is due. I'm going to do that faithfully. So, so either way, it's just like, I'm going to pay for that for a long time. And that's my land. And what if I care about my grass? All this kind of stuff. But the way Jesus interacts with us here and specifically mentioning it, Coat, is that even those things that you feel are rightfully yours and they are rightfully yours, like a lawn, you can approach those things in a peaceful way than in a giant retribution or revenge. If I disagreed with the slip and slide, which I didn't, and, and honestly, the only thing I said was, can I go on the slip and slide? Which they said yes. And it was great. It was a fun time, you know? And if they said no, I'd be like, it's all good. Have fun. Whatever. But, but instead of the way of revenge and retribution, say if that, that instance, I didn't like that, and then setting up a bigger slip and slide on their lawn, you know? But we could go about it in a peaceful way and allowing our love and light to shine and light of Christ in a way that is, that is kind and loving, gentle, that is respectful, thoughtful, that instead of going to my backyard and seeking revenge for something I may not have liked, I can go about it in a peaceful way, a different way. And finally, Jesus continues with anyone who would force you to go a mile. And David Guzik, one of my favorite pastors, um, mentioned just in contextualizing this really well. He had mentioned this, under the military law, any Roman soldier might command a Jew to carry his soldier's pack for one mile, but only one mile. That was under the military law. So imagine that in our context, like if a military personnel said, hey, you're going to carry my pack for the next mile, you're forced to under law. It'd be like, dang, that is hard. For me, I'm saying that out loud for me, but maybe for some of you, maybe not. So then the, the idea Jesus is, is getting after here and the, the way in which our heart can be positioned for him, he says this, go beyond the one mile required by law and give another mile out of free choice of love, of kindness. This is how we transform an attempt to manipulate us into a free act of love towards those who are manipulating See, this framework completely flips our trajectory because we quickly recognize we live in a world in which it's, it's easier, we feel it's better, more justified to do things completely opposite than what Jesus is commanding of us here. And he even continues with this emphasis in persecution and answers the question of loving your neighbor. In verse 43, he says, You've heard that it is said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, 
that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collectors are doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. And we see this continuation of loving your neighbor. And specifically in this context, they added the last phrase and hate your enemy. Jesus knows that they were told or encouraged, love your neighbor, which is the Torah command originally, and a newness of command from Jesus himself earlier on, love your neighbor. But yet they added on, so then let's just hate our enemy. Jesus, not to be so, because who is your neighbor? Even your enemy. Even your enemy is the neighbor I'm explaining to you. As in Jesus' context here, he's getting to the root of your, our heart. And our position to wanting and desiring to pay those who persecute us with, with hatred. And I think we live in a really unique time, and I'm sure many people say that over the course of time, but I just see that everywhere within our context of the world in which we live, that we are quick to make enemies. We are rather quick to make enemies so much to the point that if it's a differing of opinion, uh, lifestyle, um, if it's a differing of political thoughts, we would rather make them the enemy than love them neighborly. Because it's too maybe hard for us to understand, too much work for us to reconcile. It can be a many different things. And, and, and you could come to me and say, Ross, you just truly don't understand this person wears those shoes and I hate those things. And I'm like, okay, I, I can't understand that, what you're feeling in that, but I want to help frame this, that when Jesus says love your enemy or love your neighbor, it's loving your enemies as well and those who persecute you. And sadly, it's gone so far, if you think in the context of the church, that we even create enemies of those who don't go to church with us too. Those who choose another church than us as well. Those who may, we felt, have left for wrong reasons or selfish ones, they're now our enemy. For those who attend a church that has a different style or, or, or maybe a different pastor, they must be our enemy. And that is so not true, my friends. And I see Satan interweaving this confusion within God's own people. Because what can separate us from the love of God individually and spiritually? Nothing. What can separate him from his church? Nothing. But what can separate us from each other? Certainly our sinful desire. Certainly our selfish heart. Certainly a heart that misunderstands loving our neighbor and our enemies. Jesus continues in a command of praying for those who persecute you. And it's, it's unique. Have you ever done that? I'm not saying that like, like I'm sure some of you have. I'm just like, Ask you, have you ever taken a moment to pray for someone who opposes you? Who, who you may feel is persecuting you in, in a season, in a given season? If you have, you maybe quickly realize how hard that is to do. And I would admit it's extremely hard to do. But if we think and begin to think of the things we pray for in those moments and understanding our heart, God, would you just make them different? Right? It's funny, but it's true. God, would you just make them so they're like me? God, would you just show them the better way in which I've chosen like me? Truthfully, 
But the sad reality is, reality is it shows us the heart. When you pray in those ways, do you truly mean love? If we pray in those ways, do we truly mean reconciling differences? Or are we reinstating where we already are? And that breaks my heart because I, I give you examples of what I've prayed years before. God, make them like me. Make them different. But yet, if you think on prayer, what if God wanted to make you different? What if by commanding, instructing you to pray for those who persecute you, God was beginning to change a heart in you and greater love for those who are different, those who find difference with you, those who conflict, those who cause pain. Maybe he wanted to begin a difference in you. And it absolutely, we don't get to see uh, the reality of what it may do in them at times, but maybe prayer has something more to do with you than you may ever see in them. And again, it's another moment we get to position our hearts we get to turn our eyes. We get to direct our hands to where God would like us to go. We can position our heart in greater love, my friends. We can direct our eyes in seeing people like Christ does in a way in which they have an opportunity to connect with a magnificent, wonderful, righteous, just God like me and you. That we can have hands to serve, hands to lovingly care, for people who are different or we feel oppose us. May you grow in understanding the heart intent in which you must make and commit to and surrendering to Christ for action to follow. The beautiful part at the very end of this, Jesus says a, a grand statement. In this part, like, like in this piece specifically, he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Verse 48. And we see this quick contrast to things in which we cannot uphold and the reality in which the law delivers. This truth that we cannot obtain, the righteousness, the goodness in which God would require. But yet we have Jesus. Yet we have hope by the cross that, 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 that Jesus' death and resurrection gives us hope and eternity anew but in every day to walk through, that me and you can take on a new life in Christ that is different than anyone we could create for ourselves, and that he then gives us, clothes us with righteousness to be in unity with God once again. The perfection we find in the law we're commanded to is found in Jesus, but you've got to give your life to him to follow it. You've got to give your all to him, your heart to him to be the domino to change it for eternity more, but for today and tomorrow to come. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for showing us the path in which to position our heart, turn our eyes, and direct our hands towards you. God, it takes all of us, when we enter this commitment, uh, this surrender to you, Jesus, and, and, and choose to follow you, it is not merely by a, a, a word or a voice or, or just an action, but yet a surrendered heart and life that in turn changes everything within us, but also, God, as you call us to change and be the change seen in you through others. God, we are so grateful for your grace and mercy for us every day anew. 
May we wrestle with the conviction we feel today and step into the newness of mercy and grace you offer, and that by your goodness, God, we're able to take steps to grow in obedience to you, that we're able to take steps like today in loving those who oppose us, loving those who we would maybe name our enemy, but because you've commanded to love our neighbor, and that is them. So God, we thank you so much for your word. We're so honored to be um, just reading it together and learning together. Jesus, we love you. In Jesus' name.